in the wee hours of Sunday morning, as I'm recording this on May 4th, 2021, four astronauts splashed down early in the Gulf of Mexico near Panama City, Florida. It was the first nighttime astronaut splashdown since 1968. It marked the end of a successful NASA mission, but led by a private company, Elon Musk's SpaceX, taking astronauts to and from the International Space Station. Again, on behalf of NASA and the SpaceX teams, we welcome you back to planet Earth and thanks for flying SpaceX. For those of you enrolled in our frequent flyer program, you have earned 68 million miles on this voyage. At SpaceX, resilience, it is back on planet Earth. And we'll take those miles. Are they transferable? And Dragon will have to refer you to our marketing department for that policy. Space travel is starting to look much different than it did when I was growing up, and it's about to change even more dramatically. But the history of space travel is one of the most incredible pieces of America's story. And in few places can it be better felt than at Cape Canaveral. I'm Jason Epperson, and this is the Sea America podcast. From coast to coast, we see America one mile at a time, discovering stops along the way that are eclectic, historic, ridiculous, breathtaking, inspiring, and humbling. This week, the Kennedy Space Center. This great destination is brought to you by Road Trippers, America's number one road trip planning app. Road Trippers helps people discover the world around them in an entirely new way by streamlining discovery, planning, booking, and navigation. Plan your unique journey at roadtrippers.com, then use the app as your ultimate travel guide and navigator. Adventure doesn't come from the fastest route. Start exploring at roadtrippers.com. Since December 1968, the Kennedy Space Center has been NASA's primary launch center of human spaceflight. With word quickly spreading about NASA's bold Mercury program and the success of Alan Shepard's historic suborbital launch on May 5, 1961, growing numbers of press and public flocked to the Cape Canaveral area to get a closer look at America's burgeoning space program. By 1963, demand was such that Texas Congressman Alan Teague, chairman of the House Subcommittee on Manned Spaceflight, asked NASA Administrator James Webb to create a visitor program that would help build on the support and goodwill of the public. Webb's solution was a drive-through tour of what was then known as Cape Kennedy, now called Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. On Sunday afternoons from 1 to 4 p.m., the public could drive their own vehicles on a predetermined route that provided a glimpse of the launch pads and facilities. Despite the limited access, the tours proved immensely popular. From late 1963 to late 1964, an estimated 100,000 visitors took advantage of the chance to tour the Cape. Meanwhile, excitement began to build next door at Kennedy Space Center, which had earned its own status as an official space station it had been named for the late President John F. Kennedy, shortly after his assassination. In January of 1965, after a year of successful drive-through tours at Cape Kennedy, tours expanded to include areas of the Kennedy Space Center. On the first day, nearly 2,000 visitors came. 
Based on this success, the Space Flight Committee authorized $1.2 million for the creation of a visitor center at Kennedy Space Center. With help from the National Park Service, NASA hatched a plan to accommodate a projected 2.9 million visitors by 1967 and 3.2 million by 1970. The proposal included a visitor information center, as well as a guided bus tour of the center and its operations. Several possible locations for the visitor center were discussed, including several well off property. Ultimately, a site within Kennedy Space Center was chosen, not only because it provided virtually unlimited acreage for future expansion, but mainly because no matter what else visitors saw or did, they could say they had actually set foot on Kennedy Space Center. Plans for the construction and content of the visitor center moved forward, but in the meantime, a temporary facility was established with basic exhibits and restrooms serving as a hub for bus tours. Visitors could choose from a 1.5-hour tour of the Space Center or a three-hour tour that also included Cape Kennedy Air Force Station. During the first week, over 13,000 guests took the guided bus tour, with 75% opting for the three-hour version. Within three months, nearly 100,000 visitors had taken the bus tour, far exceeding NASA's expectations. With visitation growing stronger and stronger each day, the new visitor center was unveiled on August 1st, 1967. It spanned 42 acres and featured examples of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo hardware, as well as exhibits, two theaters, and concessions and souvenir facilities. As NASA grew closer and closer to meeting its goal of landing a man on the moon, visitation increased even more. Three days after the crew of Apollo 8 orbited the moon on December 24, 1968, more than 10,000 visitors descended upon the visitor center. But with buses running at capacity, tours could only accommodate just over 7,000 guests. Within 18 months, an expansion plan was approved, including a new reception area and exhibit hall, a hall of history with more exhibits, a theater and classrooms. By 1969, the Visitor Center had become one of the premier tourist destinations in Florida, ranking the second most attended attraction in the state following Tampa's Busch Gardens. 25 years later, with no government funds allocated to build new facilities and exhibits, the Visitor Center had become something of a hardware museum. While taxpayer funds had paid for the original NASA equipment, no additional money had been allocated to maintain them. National artifacts and treasures, such as a Saturn V rocket, one of only three in the world, lay outdoors, exposed to the sun, rain, and salt that corroded and rusted it. The rocket had been placed there in the summer of 76 as part of the U.S. Bicentennial Exposition on Science and Technology. The same year, NASA awarded the contract for operations of its visitor center to a new concessionaire. Between 1995 and 2007, a combination of private investment and visitor-generated funds enabled numerous physical improvements to the facility, rebuilding the visitor program. The creature comforts were the first aspects to be improved, including restrooms, restaurants, and retail shops. Before the concessionaire transition, though, plans were already in works for the construction of the Apollo Saturn V Center, which opened in January of 1997 bringing the priceless 363-foot-long Saturn V moon rocket indoors, away from the elements and the bird nests that had taken it over, and into a 100,000-square-foot facility featuring two dramatic theater presentations about the Apollo moon program. 
Another major improvement to the visitor program was the introduction of the astronaut encounter in 2000, bringing a veteran NASA astronaut face to face with the public every day of the year. The 30 minute program, which is still offered today, features a short introduction and a presentation followed by a question and answer session and a photo op with the astronaut. The first of its kind interactive show has featured astronauts from the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, Skylab, and space shuttle programs, as well as those who have lived on the International Space Station. The Lunch with an Astronaut program was implemented not long afterward, providing guests a hot buffet meal during which the astronaut provides a more in-depth presentation of his or her experience, followed by a question and answer session and individual photos with guests. In 1999, the Visitor Complex set out to offer guests an even more historical perspective and a deeper look behind the scenes with the Cape Canaveral Then and Now Tour. This in-depth three-hour guided bus tour transported guests to historic areas of the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, including the U.S. Air Force Space and Missile Museum, Blockhouse 5 and 6, the actual Mercury Mission Control Center, and the site of Alan Shepard's historic launch and Launch Complex 34, the site of the Apollo 1 tragedy that took the lives of three brave astronauts. This tour is still offered today as one of three special interest tours. From 95 to 2000, several new exhibits and attractions were added, dramatically changing the landscape of the Visitor Center complex. To ensure the ability to preserve and maintain the exhibits, the complex implemented a gated admission policy in 2000. Where guests had only previously paid for the bus tour and IMAX movies, they would now pay a flat admission fee, which included the entire experience. In September of 2002, the United States Astronaut Hall of Fame became part of the experience at Kennedy Space Center. The attraction features the world's most comprehensive collection of astronaut memorabilia ever assembled and honors all the space explorers, particularly those who have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. The year 2007 brought one of the Visitor Center's most exciting improvements to date, Shuttle Launch Experience, a thrilling, highly realistic simulation of a space shuttle launch that makes guests feel as they are traveling at 17,500 miles an hour on their way to orbit the Earth. It was designed under the advisement of veteran NASA astronauts who have said the ride is the most realistic launch simulation ever created. In 2012, the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex celebrated a remarkable milestone when it was entrusted with the care of the authentic space shuttle Atlantis, one of only three remaining space-flown orbiters in the world. In June 2013, the Space Shuttle Atlantis attraction was unveiled, containing four cinematic productions and more than 60 interactive experiences that invite guests to be the astronaut and to celebrate the people, passion, and patriotism behind the shuttle program. In the entrance plaza, guests can enjoy taking photos in front of a 3D representation of the NASA insignia, or the meatball as they call it, that spans 13 feet in diameter. To the right of the globe stands a majestic 75-foot-long fountain that pays homage to the dreams of late President John F. Kennedy. Kennedy's face, along with a quote from his famous 1962 moon speech at Rice University, is laser etched onto a skyward-reaching arch of blue granite it stands 30 feet at its highest point. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science and all technology, 
has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man. And only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a new terrifying theater of war. I do not say that we should or will go unprotected against the hostile misuse of space any more than we go unprotected against the hostile use of land or sea. But I do say that space can be explored and mastered without feeding the fires of war, without repeating the mistakes that man has made in extending his writ around this globe of ours. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. This episode of See America was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, with text adapted from NASA's own history of the Kennedy Space Center. If you like the show, we'd love a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'd also like to invite you to follow the See America podcast on Instagram and Facebook and join the See America Facebook group where we chat about some of America's greatest road trip destinations. If you're a national park lover, we hope you'll also check out the America's National Parks podcast or come listen to Abigail and me talk about our life on the road with our three boys on the RV Miles podcast. This great destination was brought to you by Road Trippers, America's number one road trip planning app. Plan your unique journey at roadtrippers.com, then use the app as your ultimate travel guide and navigator. Adventure doesn't come from the fastest route. Start exploring at roadtrippers.com dot com.